Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Maya, and this month's episode is on colorism, or sometimes known as skin shade prejudice. Yeah, so we've spoken about colorism on the podcast before. We had an episode with Associate Professor Aizwara Swati, who's based at the University of Hawaii, and is a fantastic colleague and collaborator. She was on the podcast last year talking about colorism and racism in Indonesia. Super interesting conversation, if I say so myself. (laughs) Um, And I have worked with us at CAR across a number of projects, including the project called Wanawani Waktu, which is a video series intervention designed to improve girls and young women's body confidence in Indonesia, which we spoke on the podcast earlier this year. Yeah, those are both really great episodes. I would definitely recommend listening to them both. I learned a lot listening to both those interviews. Um, Also, there's a December dictionary series um, mini episode, Defining Colorism, that might be worth checking out first if you're new to the topic. So Nadia, do you want to tell us what's in store for us in this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited about this one. I speak with my friend and colleague, Dr. Aisha Phoenix, a UKRI Future Leaders Fellow and Social Justice Lecturer at King's College London. Aisha is a sociologist with a strong academic focus on belonging and colorism, obviously. Um, She's also a former journalist and a very talented creative writer. Great. Thanks, Nadia. I'm really looking forward to listening to this. As a little more context, I'm working with Aisha, as well as Dr Annabelle Wilson, on a five-year project, Understanding Colorism Among Young People in the UK. We're in the early stages of the project, so I asked Aisha to give us an overview so we can follow up at a later date. Then Aisha and I discuss some of our previous work together, including a qualitative project speaking with adults of colour in the UK about their experiences of colorism, as well as a measure we developed, the Everyday Colorism Scale. And Aisha actually asked me questions about that. So I hope you enjoy listening. There's obviously a lot more we could have got into, but I think it was a great conversation. Thanks, Nadia. That's great. Shall we have a listen? Aisha, welcome to Appearance Back to the Podcast. It's really good to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Awesome. So this is going to be slightly different to some of our other interviews because we've obviously worked together. I was trying to work it out. Is it five, coming up to five years now, which I just can't, but there you go. And so rather than it being a a full on back and forth interview, we thought mix it up a little bit, be a bit more of a conversation because I know you've got some questions for me as well. Yes. So yeah, we'll we'll start it off. But obviously we're we're here today to talk about colorism. And I wondered if you could start us off by defining colorism. I know we've spoken about it a lot, we talk about the definition a lot. And so could you please share for our listeners how we currently define colorism? Yes, of course. So the great thing about your question there saying how would we currently define it, it show, shows the way in which it's changed over time. At the moment, we're talking about colorism as being skin shade prejudice in which people with dark skin experience disadvantages compared with those with lighter skin shades. So it can can occur both within and between racialized groups. So what do I mean by that? So a white person, for example, could be colorist towards a black person, but someone black could also be colorist towards someone else who is black. And also Mm -hmm. within colorism is something called phenotypic bias. So people of color face greater discrimination 
the further their features are from those associated with whiteness. Lovely and succinct. Thank you. Um, so I referenced that we've been working together for what I think is coming up to five years. And the first project we worked on was a qualitative investigation on colorism in the UK. And we spoke to 33 adults of color. The first paper from this project focused on black and mixed race men. And we've got some other papers in the works in the pipeline. And so we'd love to just talk to you a little bit about this project and thinking about the big picture of the project, what would you say are some of the most important takeaways? So one of the key takeaways is thinking about the way in which colorism in the family and at school affects young people growing up. That was something that came up in a number of our interviews in different ways, both with men and with women. So some of the things that participants mentioned were the fact that they've been subjected to colorist bullying and teasing both at home and at school. Some talked about divisions between them and their siblings related to skin shade, either because they had lighter skin and their, and their siblings were jealous of them, or they had actually not so much that, it was more the other way around. So, but siblings with darker skin feeling judged or treated worse than siblings with lighter skin. Also, young people who were made to feel inferior to siblings or other family members due to their skin shade, which I've just already highlighted and the way in which that came out sometimes as teasing sometimes as just comments comparisons that they found really um, upsetting and also how early young people learn that skin shade is a form of capital which depending on how they were positioned could be a real advantage or disadvantage so they learned very early on that light skin was seen as a source of capital as something that was um, a source of privilege etc and if they had light skin, then that was great because they were seen as beautiful or clever or, or more valuable. But if they had dark skin, that had a very negative impact on them. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is how, as you, exactly as you say, how early they learnt those, those messages from families, from peers and the people around them. And I'm curious, as someone who's been thinking about colorism for a long time, was there anything that surprised you in the narratives the adults shared with us? Yeah, there were a number of things that I found surprising, actually. One of them was that the number of men who talked about being subjected to colorism when they were growing up because they had dark skin. Now, often colorism is spoken about as an issue that affects women of color. And there's lots around beauty and ideas, ideals around beauty being women with light skin. But even the men participants talked about being deemed ugly for having dark skin and even in the relationship market being disadvantaged because they had dark skin or being teased in the playground by young women or other young men because their skin was dark. And I think we were aware that colorism does also affect men, but I still found it surprising the, the number of them that mentioned that and the way in which they said it affected them. I was also surprised by the extent to which geographical context affected experiences of colorism. And that was something that came up again a number of times. I think we were both struck by that. So for example, someone who benefits from light skin privilege in one area may be subjected to overt racism in another. So therefore, although you might on the one hand have light skin privilege and benefit from colorism, that didn't protect you from really vile racism in other areas, particularly rural areas. And participants were really keen and to point that out and it was important that we understood that that although they have privilege in certain contexts it didn't mean that they weren't subjected to racism and they didn't feel all of that pain as well as being rejected then sometimes by people of the same racialized background with darker skin or if they were mixed race people if they were mixed race black and white 
by black people who didn't necessarily consider them to be black at the same time as they were getting terrible racism from white people in rural contexts. So that was important. And I think also one of the things that I was struck by was the difficulty people of color had in distinguishing between instances of colorism and racism. And that was something that we've spoken about. Um, we've spoken about at length because we hadn't anticipated that prior to starting the project. But when we asked the questions and participants were, were sitting there thinking, well, was that racism or colorism or how would I know? And that, that we thought a lot about that, didn't we? That was something that we discussed a number of times because there were contexts when it was impossible for participants to know because they had no one else of the same racialized background with different skin shades to compare um, with themselves with. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point because it always feels so relative when thinking about who's around you. Mm-hmm. So if you are in the workplace and all of your colleagues are white, are you being treated differently because you're for example, South Asian, or because you've, you're South Asian and have dark skin and you don't have that comparator. So if there's multiple people who are South Asian in this hypothetical work context, and then you've got the variations in skin shade, you can then distinguish a little bit clearer, like, oh, I'm being treated differently because of my skin shade compared to the other South Asians in the room, both by the other South Asians, but also by the white colleagues or or whatever. So you you almost need to have different people there to be able to compare because it's so relative. Exactly. And that was really important. And it and it has fed into us thinking about when you're doing research like this, mm-hmm. how do you approach it in such a way that you narrow down and focus on those instances of colorism? How do you approach formulating questions that 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 those were really important considerations that we've been think, grappling with since doing this project haven't we yeah and we'll continue to do so I I imagine definitely definitely yes and another thing that I was surprised by and I think we've talked about this as well is the considerable differences in perceptions of skin shade and what constitutes light or dark skin so mm. for example I have what has now become perhaps medium dark skin as opposed to what I used to think was dark skin Um, and that's my perception of my own skin shade has changed in relation to how other people see me and their ideas around dark skin and not wanting to take away from people's experiences of having more more um, prejudice directed towards them because their skin is darker than mine but then also interviewing people who had said who said oh yes I have light skin and they're talking about themselves but yet they were the same skin shade as me. And I've never considered myself as someone with light skin because as far as I'm concerned, I don't have light skin. But for them, in a family where everyone else has much darker skin, and, it, and as you said before, that it's all relative, they then consider themselves as someone who has light skin. And that was fascinating to me, that there was such a disparity in, in ideas around what constitutes different skin shades. And even in how people chose their skin shade on a skin shade chart. That was interesting as well, because we tried that. It was very difficult doing it for ourselves and other people. But sometimes they would choose shades that, as far as I was concerned, looked nothing like them. And so their self-perceptions and my perception of them were very different. What did you think in terms of that? What I was actually just thinking as you were speaking is how important those comparisons are or who is the relevant comparison. So one of the examples you mentioned there was in comparison to family I think so it's like if you're comparing yourself to family members that that's and that's the relevant point of comparison in your self-definition of your skin shade I think that's really that's really interesting because do you shift when you think about your skin shade depending on the context you're in or is that 
growing up experience, the fact that you were the darkest in the family or the lightest in the family, does that always stay with you when you're in other contexts and you're with people of different skin shades? That's a brilliant question. So, yeah, so I don't know the answer, but I'm, I'm, I suspect it varies, but I, I think it's interesting. Maybe it's something we can explore because yeah. I'd be very interested to, to hear about that too, because I think it's, it's really relevant. If you're in a peer group with everyone and with everyone else having much lighter skin and you yeah. just make you think that your light skin is actually darker than it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. The really interesting questions. Yeah. Really interesting. So, yeah, definitely something we should we should come back to. And there's one other point in, definitely related to that, which is to do with the way in which skin shade varies across racialized um, backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you think about South Asian people and black people or people of African heritage, they can be people of the same skin shade, but that skin shade will be seen as lighter or darker depending on whether you're South Asian or African, African Caribbean, for example. And I think yes. that's really important to yeah. recognize as well because different racialized groups understand light skin, medium skin and dark skin in different ways. Completely. And yeah, again, I know we've spoken about this and even when we're speaking about ourselves personally, because I'm South Asian, and have Indian heritage. I'm also mixed race, so I've got uh, a white parent as well. But I'm not what I would consider light skin for someone who's mixed Indian and white, because North Indians have typically can have much lighter skin than I would have. So it becomes very specific within those racialized groups. So yeah, I think it's a really good point. And drawing and building on that, the idea about being mixed race necessarily meaning light skin privilege yeah. doesn't always apply because as, as you described if you have one parent who's got very dark skin and one parent who's white for example that doesn't necessarily mean your skin is going to be read as particularly light within that rate yeah. within whichever racialized group you you come from So I've just come back from a colorism symposium at New York University in Abu Dhabi, where there was a lot of excitement about the colorism scale we developed. And now this was your brainchild. So I wanted to ask you a few questions about that because there was just it was just palpable the excitement around the scale and oh, you know Nadia. So um yes. So <laughs> would you tell us what led you to want to develop the scale? Yeah, absolutely. And before I get there. The one person who was like, oh, you know, Nadia is better I Saraswati, who has actually been on the podcast. She's been on the podcast talking about colorism in Indonesia. So just to, to reference that. So the scale. So I'll give you a quick introduction of the scale for the benefit of our listeners. And then we'll talk about why, why we developed it. So the everyday colorism scale was uh, designed to capture everyday experiences of colorism. So the frequency individuals feel like they're being judged or mistreated due to the shade of their skin. It's based upon Professor David Williams' everyday discrimination scale, which is really widely used in psychology, public health, thinking about the the experiences of discrimination in in general and, and health outcomes. But we tailored it to be more specific to colorism. So, for example, the original version of the everyday discrimination scale has nine items, whereas the everyday colorism scale has 16 items. So there's um, a number that have been added on. And it also includes a comparative component to try and get to the nuance of, of colorism. So, for example, some items include because of my skin shade, people treat me with less respect compared with other people of color of the same racialized group. 
as me or people view me as more threatening compared with other people of color who are the same racialized group as me so going back to your question so why did we develop the scale the need really came about when we first started thinking about wanting to do some work on quantitatively exploring the experience of colorism affecting people of color in the UK. So we had done that qualitative work to begin with and then thought, okay, a next step is to see if we can reach more people and, and quantitative methods typically allow us to do that and, and reach more people and, and gather data on people's experiences. So, and specifically, I was keen to, to look at whether colorism was associated with people of color's body image. And when I was planning that, and when we were thinking about how to do that, we couldn't find a, a scale to use. There wasn't a, a, a tool or a measure to assess how people were being treated based on their skin shade. And looking at some of the other work that was available, this work was either based on single item measures. So they were just asking a single question. Do you think people are treating you differently based on your skin shade? or in other ways, just like lacking some of the, the nuances of, of colorism. So we felt it was important to, to be able to really meaningfully say experience of colorism are associated with poor body image, for example, or are associated with psychological distress. We need to know that we're capturing experiences of colorism and capturing those in a, in a way that's consistent with how we're defining colorism. So as, as an example, an important component of colorism that you mentioned earlier when we're talking about the definition of colorism is that colorism can occur both between and within racialized groups and so we wanted to acknowledge that within the scale particularly when we're doing this work in the UK so we designed the scale to be administered twice so the first time or at least once we're asking people to base their responses on experience of colorism from the individuals in group so if it's if the individual is south asian how are other south asians treating them perceiving them and then the scale is designed to be delivered a second time to be based for experiences of colorism to be based on a person's out group so for that south asian for that same south asian individual for them to report their experiences of colorism from white people. And we chose white people in the, in the context when we were, were testing this as white people are the, the majority in the UK, we were testing this in the UK. So white people felt like a, the most relevant out group. And so by administering the scale twice, we can then see if it makes a difference if colorism is being experienced from someone's same racialized group or from someone who is from a different racialized group and particularly white people within the study. So essentially we developed a scale so we could really try and capture quantitatively people's experiences of colorism in the UK and then be able to see if there are, as a first step, associations between perceived colorism and different psychological outcomes. And specifically we chose body image and psychological distress. That sounds great. Thank you so much. And then what do you think the advantages of having the scale will be? Yeah, so I think really just building on some of the points I shared, I think the scale allows us to capture perceived colorism. So individuals subjective view on how others are treating them and perceiving them. And in general, research indicates that it's important to understand people's subjective experiences when it comes to any type of discrimination. 
in relation to, to health outcomes and perhaps in particular when it comes to mental health and well-being. So it's a subjective measure. People are self-reporting how they are being treated or perceived. And there's value in having that captured rather than just doing a looking at someone's skin shade and then looking at associations between different health outcomes because it's it's understanding people's internal experiences of how they're being perceived based on their skin shade so I think that's that's the advantage of it and I think the other advantage to me is because it's designed to be administered twice it allows us to try and tease apart does it make a difference whether colorism is being experienced from someone's in-group or from someone's out-group which I don't think has been tested in as much detail previously that's really interesting so then what is next for the scale how would how would you use it yeah so I think really related to to some of the conversation about the scale already I think so the scale is developed for a UK context and to and developed to better understand how people of colour in the UK experience colourism and I think based on all the conversation we've we've had about how colorism can can be relative and can also may vary by racialized group may vary by social context the scale might not directly translate to other places in the world and i'd be really curious to use the scale in other parts of the world but it's likely the case that in addition to any language translations that might be required it might be the case that we need to add items, take away items to really capture how colorism plays out in that particular country or context. So I think that would be a really useful next step is thinking when we're doing research maybe in other countries, thinking how do we validate the scale for use in different parts of the world. I think other next steps of using the scale would be testing different psychological measures so as I mentioned we looked at body image and psychological distress there are lots of other different outcomes that we might want to consider we might want to consider this longitudinally too so over time so if you experience if we ask people at one point in time how much you're experiencing colorism and then what may be the outcome two years down the line if you've experienced a lot of colorism at one point and then does that impact different outcomes at a later date so looking at looking at it longitudinally I think would be useful too and 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 thinking about how people are experiencing prejudice discrimination over time I think would be really useful that would all that data would be Mm. great to explore and I think it would be interesting to see if people do use the scale in different international contexts Mm -hmm. what they write about as they write up their research Mm -hmm. in terms of those tweaks, amendments, changes, that revisions that you talked about to make the scale work better for a particular context. We're really interested to see that. Um, so I want to transition us back and ask you some more questions, Aisha, because as I said, we've been working together for some time. We've worked on a number of different projects, but we have now got to a point where we're working on a very big project and you won a big, very prestigious UK RI grant to research colorism among young people in the UK that I've got the pleasure of working on alongside Dr. Annabelle Wilson. And I wondered if you could tell our listeners what we've got lined up for the project. Of course, yes. Yeah. So this the project is separated into four key phases. In the first phase, we'll be talking to young people aged between 12 and 18 years old from different ethnic backgrounds at secondary schools in both London and Bristol. 
as well as talking to school staff and parents in focus groups and one-on-one -on -one interviews. And then for the second phase of the project, we'll set up a colorism network and conduct a large scale survey with a thousand young people aged between 11 and 18 about colorism. And that will be informed by key insights from both those interviews and focus groups in the first phase of the project. And then for the third phase, we'll move on to creating a short animated film on colorism in collaboration with young people, and then use that in a standalone lesson for students based on our findings from the qualitative data collection and the survey as well. And then in the final phase of the project, we'll host a conference on colorism and we'll invite our colorism network advisory boards and other interested parties to attend. And we'll host community events and knowledge exchange workshops to really disseminate the research and raise awareness about colorism. Awesome, thanks Aisha. And we're, we're firmly into to phase one and got to that really exciting part of starting to collect data and, and hearing from, from people what their experiences are. And I think, yeah, just super excited to, to get further along into that and see how it's playing out for young people in the UK. Definitely, yeah, it's a really exciting time because then we've got the data collection and then the analysis and it's yeah. working with you previously when we analyse data together. It's, I find that really exciting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder again for our listeners, can you share a little on your vision for the project? What are you hoping to achieve? You've spoken about the, these four different phases, but what's kind of like the end goal with it? I'd say that there are three key aims. The first one is to increase understanding of colorism and how it operates in the UK, given that this is a relatively new area of research. And then the second aim is to raise awareness about colorism and how damaging it can be and how it affects young people in the UK. And then the third key aim is to work towards challenging the prejudice, because it's one thing to, to highlight the problem. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to think about how to how to challenge it. And so that will be through resources for schools and parents, our standalone lesson and animation, and then working with other organisations and, and those committed to addressing colorism and collaborating with other colorism researchers in the UK and internationally. Because from that Abu Dhabi symposium and from from organizations that have already been in contact with us it's clear that there's some real energy and enthusiasm and um, a sense that it's really important to challenge colorism and so it's a, a wonderful time to be able to work with other people and have this opportunity to try and, and change the narrative and try and raise awareness try and educate people to think about skin shade differently and that's something i'm really excited about that's a, for me that's one of the most important aspects of of the research yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, Aisha, it's been a delight speaking with you on the podcast. Before I can let you go, I've got one final question that we love to ask all our guests on this podcast. So to give you a bit of background, at the Centre for Appearance Research, every Thursday we have a regular team meeting and after that team meeting we have a cake and coffee morning. And so with our podcast guests we like to ask if you were to come along to that cake and coffee morning and the meeting as well if, if you so wish uh, what cake would you bring and why right well this is a wonderful question could go on for quite a long time talking about cake <laughs> i love cake um that it would be a, a, a bit of a fight between a lemon drizzle cake that's not too sweet but has a lovely mm. crunchy topping mm -hmm. and nice and moist and a delicious chocolate cake that's not dry, not overly sweet, maybe with a slightly sour top, sour icing, but again, delicious and moist with a lovely thick frosting in the middle. 
both of those sound delicious and a bit of a theme with like not having it too sweet but making sure that they're not dry we're not not a fan of a dry cake Aisha (laughs) not at all no no brilliant well thank you so much for doing the the podcast we'll have to get you back on when we've got some some more workout that's wonderful thank you so much I've really enjoyed talking to you Oh, so I really enjoyed listening to that and I'm really looking forward to having Aisha back on the podcast to hear more about the Understanding Colorism project. I particularly enjoyed hearing about your qualitative work. It's really interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed that qualitative project. We definitely need to get some of those other papers out um, soon. Project for the summer, maybe. <laughs> um, oh, this summer, next summer. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um oh dear um but anyway Aisha is brilliant she's so fun to work with and it will be great to have her back on the show at a later date and as a quick spoiler we're going to be bringing back our summer short series this July and August and I'll be speaking about the everyday colorism scale to give it a little bit more context in a single episode that sounds great I'm sure there's loads more to say on that project um so I'm excited to hear about that and excited to share the rest of this year's summer shorts um we've got some great papers lined up yeah we really do we're going to be recording those shortly so that's going to be a lot of fun and with that i hope you enjoyed listening to the show and if you did please remember to share subscribe rate and review it really helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost it definitely does and remember you can keep up to date with the center's work on facebook instagram and twitter and all the links are in our show notes as always okay until next time bye Cool. Cool. Happy? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think that was good.